Harmony of the Gospels. This is week 31, and uh, we're in Matthew 11 and, and uh, skipping on down to 14. The, the theme this morning is not good enough. And, and I have a confession to make this morning. I haven't always been a Christian. Shocking for you to know that your pastor has not always been a born-again Christian. I, in fact, I have, well, I, I grew up watching and, and even, dare I say, enjoying Saturday Night Live. I said it out loud. Much of my sense of humor was shaped by the irreverence of skits like Hans and Franz or church chat with the church lady or Wayne's World, right? Wayne's World, which went on to have two motion pictures. And I, I, I'm, to this day, I'm not sure why they made two movies about that. But the most underrated skit, in my opinion, was Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. I don't know if you've seen this. Google it. Go on YouTube. Stuart was a fictional character who struggled with self-esteem and self-image. He was created and performed by comedian Al Franken, who did a marvelous job. His tagline at the end of every sketch, as he looked at himself in the mirror, was this. I'm good enough. Smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. So he said, every, every skit, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Now, some of you who've been around Emmaus Road for a while, you're asking in your mind, you're like, Sadie, what's going on? You never miss an opportunity to make a Lord of the Rings reference. This isn't like you. Are you okay? And my answer is yes. I just want to keep you guessing. Now, in the late 80s and early 90s, we laughed, nay, we guffawed at skits like the one I just described. But now... We've come to an era in our culture where instead of art imitating life, life is imitating art. And our culture is all about the power of self, self-esteem, self-talk, self-love, and on and on and on. And at the center of all of it is self, the obsession of which we call, rightly, selfishness. And this self-centeredness is a function of the godlessness in our culture because when a person has an encounter with the one true and living God, nothing else can match it. You see yourself in the light of his holiness and his splendor and you realize just like the prophet Isaiah did, I'm nothing compared to God. The focus shifts to God and away from self. But that's not all. Unfortunately, there is a Christianized version of this pervasive philosophy working its way through the church. I hear it in the culture. I, I, I see it in the media. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. Okay, that's a Lord of the Ring reference. Are you guys even awake? Have you even had caffeine? Come on. The, the, this is the Christianized version of the self-help philosophy sounds a lot like Stuart Smalley 
from Saturday Night Live. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And God accepts me just as I am. The only problem with that is it's 100% false. It's 100% false. So we have our work cut out for us in these last hours, church. There are many around us who believe what I've just articulated, who are headed to hell, and then their arraignment before God on Judgment Day, only to be placed forever in the lake of fire. And now is the moment when we get to do something about that as the church. Later will be too late. So let's look at our text this morning with that in mind. And my intention is to bring to the surface these lies and these myths about how we gain a right relationship with God himself. So we're in the Harmony of the Gospels. This is, if, you, if you're actually reading from the Harmony this morning, it's section 100, Matthew 11, 1, and Mark 6, 12. And I'll just read these in uh, Luke 9, 6. These three uh, verses individually. M- Matthew 11, 1, when Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Remember last time they had gone out in pairs, right? He had sent them out. First time he called them apostles, he sent them with the message and go and preach, go and heal, go and lay hands on the sick and cast out demons. And so they've gone. And now Jesus has instructed them. He's gone on to teach in the cities. Mark says it this way, Mark 6, 12 to 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. And then here's Luke 9, 6. And they departed and they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So the apostles had gone out at the command of Jesus. And now Jesus himself has also taken the opportunity to go and to teach and to preach in the cities around, uh, around Jerusalem, around that area. Now, Mark... Remember we said that Mark's gospel is Peter's account of the life and ministry of Jesus because Peter was an ordinary, blue-collar, illiterate guy who couldn't read and write. And so Mark is his amanuensis, his secretary, and he's writing down what Peter said. And so Peter tells us they preached, they healed everyone everywhere they went. They were proclaiming the goodness of God, that people should repent. They're heralding, they're, they're giving voice to the message that everybody needs to be reconciled to God, and they're calling people to repentance. You and I should be doing the same thing. Usually, was my amen sections in the kids' room today? So I need some of you to step up, okay? I need some of you to step up. Um, they're heralding a message that we should be reconciled to God. So let's take a moment and talk about the call to repent. The Greek word is metanoia, and it's, and it's necessary. It's part of salvation. Uh, there's huge debate in the church. Uh, I remember being a college student and listening to people debate about this. Well, you don't have to repent to be a Christian. It's like, wow. I don't know. I see the scripture saying again and again, repent and be saved, repent and be saved, repent and be saved. There's a necessary element of turning away from sin and turning to God. That's necessary. It's necessary. So the definition of metanoia is, this is the textbook definition, a change of mind as as it appears to one who repents of a purpose he has formed or of something he has done. In, In the simplest terms, metanoia, repentance is a change of mind. It's a reversal, of course. It's, I was going this way, and now 
I'm turning 180 degrees and I'm going the other way. It's a reversal of course. Repentance is a change of heart and mind. If you're not turning from your sin and forsaking sin, then you're continuing in sin and that's not repentance. So the apostles here, we're told, are casting out demons. They're healing the sick, anointing them with oil, calling people to repent of their sins. And then remember Jesus's deliberate progression. Um, I, I love, some, at some point, you know, after we get through this series, or even as we're going through it, if, you, if you'll read that harmony of the Gospels with this lens on, what is Jesus doing to equip these disciples and apostles at this stage? How is it changing as he moves them through the pipeline of maturity towards Christ-likeness? Because when he starts out, it's, it's really just a, come on, guys, follow me. Watch what, watch what Jesus does. Watch what I do. Watch. And then later it's like, okay, guys, I want you to try this. I'll, I'm going to be right here with you. I'm going to, Peter, I'm going to hold your hand because you're, you're a loose cannon. Um, right? Well, I'm, I'm right here. And then later he's like, guys, go, go, go do that. I'll be right here when you get back. You go and do that. You see a progression of trust, them taking a moral responsibility. This is a way of intentionally disciple building. You don't take a toddler, you, you don't hand a toddler a, a, a wrench um, and tell them to go change the oil in the car. I mean, you could. You're going to have dings in your door probably, and headlight busted out. But when, when a child is old enough, you watch and see what they do. Later, when they've grown up and they have more strength, they, they can assist you in a task. And then even later, when they're confident in what they're doing, they can be set loose to do it on their own. And, and this is what Jesus is doing with the disciples. He's super intentional as a disciple maker, and we should be too. We should be that way with the people around us who are, who, who are new Christians or people who are Christians who aren't quite to the place that we're at in our walk with Jesus. We need to be going, where are they in their walk? What is it that they need in this season of their life? And how can I come alongside them and, and walk with them and help them to, to, to grow in Christ-likeness? That's disciple-making. So we keep going. The next section here of text is section 101 in the harmony. And, uh, and I'll just read out these three, these three verses, uh, uh, the three sections again, Matthew 14, 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod's freaking out. Mark records this in Mark 6, 14 to 16. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And then here's Luke's account, Luke 9, 7 to 9. Now the Herod, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So by sending the apostles out two by two, Jesus has strategically put himself on the map. It's brought him increased fame and notoriety. 
And, and that sounds like a bad thing. It can be a bad thing for us. Fame can go to our heads, can puff up our egos. It is dangerous, but Jesus knows what he's doing. And he's, he's, he's discipling his men. He's giving them more responsibility, less hands-on, sending them out. And then, um, and then this, is, this is about, this whole thing is about salvation for the Jews who will believe. Because remember, last week we said, he sent them to the cities of the Jews. He, did, he said, don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Right now, it's just him sending his disciples out, his apostles, to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. And so later, it's going to be, he's going to commission his guys again, and it's going to be a worldwide sending. But we're not there yet. Um, we see in the text that Herod the Tetrarch had heard about Jesus, but instead of recognizing who Jesus really was, he said, this is John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. Apparently, that was the only way for him to wrap his head around all the things that Jesus was doing and all the reports he was hearing. And others are saying, no, he's Elijah or he's a prophet. But Herod just doubled down on what he believed to be true because that's the only way he could grasp the miraculous things that were going on, all the reports he's hearing. And so now the, the, the backstory is being caught up now in Matthew 14 in this next section. So Matthew 14, 3 to 12, here's what we read. For Herod had seized John the Baptist and had bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison and sent his head and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Here's Mark's account. Same incident. Mark 6, 17 to 29. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You know people like that? They go to church, they're not believers. They're like, I just like being in church. I don't understand what the preacher said, but I just like being in church. That's the Spirit drawing. That's the Spirit working, right? But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me, for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give it, even up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And so she came back in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests, and he did not want to break his word to her. 
And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Okay, so here in the text, we've come back to the situation with John the baptizer, and we have Matthew and Mark's accounts of this event. This is really a flashback to what got John arrested in the first place and condemned. He's been in prison for about 18 months at this point, just languishing in prison. People come and visit him and bring him something that he needs, but he's been in prison for a year and a half. And, and so we need some historical context here. See, Matthew and Mark both record that Herod put John in prison, and this was almost certainly at the request of Herodias, as Herod had divorced his previous wife, Phasaelus, who was the daughter of King Aretas of Nabatea. That's some, that's some words I don't normally say, so th thank you for bearing with me. Um, he, he, was, he had visited the palace of his half-brother Philip and had become infatuated with Philip's wife. So he, they, whatever, I don't know what the progression was, but she left him, she came to Herod, and now they're married. He has taken his brother's wife. And, and so she, yeah, this whole thing's just, it's immoral. And John the Baptist is not going to be silent about it. So he's preaching against this. And, and remember, um, he, because he's preaching, he's calling this thing what it is. It's adultery. He, he's just publicly saying, Herod is an adulterer. And so being angry with John, Herod tosses him into prison for making a scene uh, and condemning him, but that wasn't enough, right? The Her Herodias, Her the, the wife now, she's, she's clamoring for John to die. She wants him to be put to death. And we've got to remember back in Luke 3.19, John was already publicly condemned, uh, publicly condemning this and other evils committed by Herod. So he's already got like a, a bad list from the Herods. They don't like John because John's a truth teller and he's, he's trying to stay in step with the Holy Spirit. But consider how a person in power in those days would generally, uh, if you think about it, be surrounded by sycophants and people who would only ever want to flatter them. You know, they had all this power, right? It wasn't like um, a, a, a republic, you know, a democratic republic where we have recourse with our elected officials. These people weren't elected they were they, they ascended to power her, hereditarily usually or were appointed by Rome and it wasn't for four years and then you get to vote on a new guy not that that works so well for us anymore but you had these people for life generally and they had all the power and they didn't have to answer to you and so this is the reality right um, it had to be quite jarring to have this prophet dressed in camel hair, calling, go, like going on the street corner every day and calling out his immorality and doing it publicly. You can imagine how all that had to have infuriated Herod. So Herod threw him in prison and his wife called for John to be executed. But Herod was a career politician and he knew that the people loved John and that simply killing him might cause a riot. But then on the other hand, not killing him might encourage a rebellion to fester. So then you add Salome and her provocative dancing. Oh, by the way, when the text says she danced, it wasn't like 
Saturday Night Fever or it wasn't like a junior high. It, anyway, it was it was the kind of dancing you don't want to. Uh, I'm moving on. John the Baptist is going to take one for the kingdom. So think of it like this. Basically, he's in jail for preaching biblical morality. There's a lesson there for us. There's a warning there for us. John the Baptist is in jail for preaching a biblical morality. And do not say in your heart, that can never happen here in America. But this is where we are today as a culture already. I would even venture to say there are some places and some events where you're more likely to be arrested for preaching God's truth than being arrested for breaking the laws that are on the books. <laughs> Culturally, our ideas about justice are polluted and inverted and they're getting worse. And, and what's right is now wrong and what's wrong is now right. And we're not done yet. Our culture is circling the Romans one toilet bowl. We're not, we're not done. So just hang on, folks. The ride's getting bumpy. So, so this last section here, um, is just two little verses, uh, section 103, Mark 6.30 and Luke 9, verse 10. says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they'd done and taught. And then Luke says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. So they're just coming back to Jesus, checking in with Jesus. Hey, I want to man, it was amazing what, what the Spirit did through us as we went in faith and, and stepped out in faith and boldness and shared the message that you wanted us to share. And we ministered to people and laid hands on them and healed them. And so they're just, they're just, you know, excited. I don't know if you've ever been on a missions trip or if you've ever gone uh, door to door to talk to people about Jesus, or if you've ever gone, uh, just you've been part of an event where you had an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. And even if they didn't respond well, you kind of come out of that going, wow, you know, like your heart's pumping and your adrenaline's pumping and, and you're just like, this was incredible. Why don't I do this every day? Why don't I, I'm going to start, I'm going to start going to people's doors. And then like two days later, you're like, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Right. Because it wears off. But, but you just you get that excitement. And these guys are excited. The apostles return and they report into Jesus. And you can just imagine how these guys fresh off this trip are relaying what had happened, how people were touched and healed. And, and some people were coming to faith in the Messiah. Like, again, you know, if you've been on a missions trip, you can relate to that elation of having wrapped it all up and still being energized by all that the Lord did as you walked in faith and and what an encouragement for these guys who've been with Jesus to this point. This is an encouragement to them. They're going to need these memories and these moments when Christ has been tried and crucified. And also later when, when Christ ascends into heaven, they're going to need, need to come back to this moment and, and say, yes, Christ rooted us. Jesus rooted us in him. Even, even back here, we can, we can go forward. And so uh, for this moment, they celebrate together what God has done among them. And I just want to say to you, I don't know what your Sunday afternoons are. We should celebrate. I mean, really, you should have people over to your house every once in a while or, or, or just get together with your life group sometimes and just, just celebrate what God is doing. You know, I, I wouldn't even tell our life group leaders if, if at some point you want to take a, uh, a week and not do the discussion questions, but just let people share what God is doing. And just pray together, do that, you know? We need to celebrate what God's doing among us. And in this moment, they're celebrating what God has done among them. And that's what Sundays are about, amen? 
We come together and celebrate what God's doing. As a function of bringing more of that about, I want to encourage each one of you to be more intentional about connecting here on Sundays, either prior to the service or after the service. And just show up a little early and stand around and sip your coffee and have a conversation. Stick, stick around after, and, and, and the coffee's a little more lukewarm at that point, but you can sip it then and, and just hang out for a little bit and get to know people and have some conversations. That, I hope you take advantage of those opportunities or maybe just create some of your own because we need the fellowship and camaraderie as the days grow darker. We need to be connected to each other as the body of Christ. So our application really... Out of, out of this text is, is, if you'll remember the introduction, I said that my intention was to bring to the surface the lies and myths about how we gain right relationship with God himself. So let me just give you three myths uh, this morning from the text. And, and I think you'll recognize these. They, they, kind of, they kind of are closely related to each other. They're all lies. All three of these are lies. The first lie is, I can and will be good enough, and God will be pleased. That is a pervasive lie in our culture, and particularly in American culture. I can be good enough, God will like me, and he will welcome me into the kingdom. Reality check. You and I need the imputed righteousness of Jesus, who never sinned in any way at all. That, that righteousness covers us when we stand before God on the day of judgment. And the only way we get that covering is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. See, the definition of good, see, see I, I can be good enough, God, to the definition of good, according to Jesus, is moral perfection. Uh-oh. Uh, he alone is morally perfect and without sin. And this is why so many people that I have known in the church do not understand the encounter with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. I don't know if you've read that recently, but think about that this, this young man, um, he, he comes running to Jesus. It's, it's, he's a young guy. He's got a lot of money. He's an important, uh, important figure in the community, even though he's young. And he does something that's really out of place. He runs. You, you just If you were important... If you, if, especially if you're a man, middle-aged and up, you don't run. It's, it's not dignified in that culture. This guy runs to Jesus. He, he gets down on his knees and he asks this important question. And, and, and Jesus gives a question in return. He doesn't actually answer him. He gives him a question. Jesus asks this young man, he says, why, why do you call me good? Because when he came up to him, he said, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, why did you call me good? He didn't say, well, if you do this and this and this, you'll have eternal life. He asked him a question. Why do you call me good? There's none good but God alone. See, Jesus had to reset this guy's morality. He had to reestablish what the boundaries were. He had to show him that goodness is not on a gradient. It's goodness is holiness. Goodness is perfection morally before God. And this young man, he jumps right in. He asks, it's an important question, but Jesus gives a question in return. Again, why do you call me good? There's none good but God alone. And he throws this question back at him, um, I think, to affirm his statement that Jesus is a good teacher, one. And two, 
um, that Jesus is presenting a way to eternal life is the only is the only way. It is a good way. It is good, but it's the only way. And this rich young ruler is not good according to God's standards. That puts him in a dilemma. It puts him in a dilemma. So, so, so Jesus lays down some of the Ten Commandments for this young man. He says, okay, I hear what you're saying, Jesus. You just gave me four of the Ten Commandments, but you know, I've done all that since I was a kid. I've done all that. In his pride, he claims he's kept all these laws, all these precepts from the time he was little. And this is where Jesus in the text of Mark 10 drops the truth bomb. He tells this young man, okay, so then do this. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the text tells us that young man went away sad because he was a person of great wealth. The point of the passage and especially in our context, is that in the flesh, we cannot be pleasing to God. We cannot be pleasing to God. There's not enough that you can do in your power, in your flesh, to be pleasing to God. It's impossible. The text tells us that the young man went away sad because he was a person of great wealth. This is not how we're accepted by God, not by our doing. Those who approach Jesus in this way, hoping for eternal life, are going to find themselves sorely disappointed as they languish in torment forever. Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote this, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is the idea that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. It's pernicious. It's damnable. Literally. If you believe that you can be good enough to live in the presence of God, you actually are going to be damned for eternity. You cannot be good enough, not in yourself, not in your own power, not in your own effort. Only by the grace of Jesus applied to our lives by faith. That's the only thing that saves us. Mankind is incurably addicted to doing something to earn our salvation. But what does the Bible say about being good enough? Well, the Bible tells us again, plainly, God's standard is moral perfection. So yes, you can be good enough to get to heaven. You just have to be perfect and never sin, even once in your entire life. Anybody qualify? No, none of us. The only, yeah, it's impossible. And God testifies the same in his word in Romans 3, to 24. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And we're justified not by our works. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. It's free. It's a gift. You can have it, but you can't earn it. You can't make it happen. You can't be good enough. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. God's solution is a pardon found in Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. Our sins are taken care of for good. Listen to Hebrews 10.10. By by that we will have been been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly those same sacrifices. Remember at the altar all the time, sacrifice, sacrifice. Another sacrifice, another sacrifice. It was continual. It was all the time, repeatedly. And, it could, and then and here in Hebrews, it says it can never take away sin. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by offering that single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One time, one offering, one man, Christ Jesus, sufficient for all people. Your best isn't good enough. That's number one. That's lie number one. Here's lie number two. I will work hard. God will be pleased with me. I'll work hard. This is the man option. Work hard. I'm going to go out and, you know, guys like, I mean, we were made for work. Guys were made to work. We like to work. We like to work more than almost anything else. No, I don't, no, some of you are like, no, I don't like to work. I like to go home and sit. no. No, if you had to be alone at home with your family, it's like, no, I prefer to go to work, right? Yeah, whoa, hey, yeah, repent. We're back to the back to the beginning now, and now it's the repentance part, okay? But th- this is lie number two, I will work hard and God will be pleased with me. Reality check. You can't earn your salvation by doing good works. One sin against a perfectly holy God is infinitely heinous and evil because he is infinitely good and pure and righteous. When I did a lot of street evangelism, <clears throat> I used this illustration a lot, and it helped people see things more clearly. Now, it's going to sound really out there, so just prepare yourselves. If I saw you on the sidewalk coming towards me, and as we approached, I clenched my fist, and I punched you in the face for no apparent reason other than I just wanted to, would that be wrong? And the answer is yes. Yes, it would be wrong. It would be morally wrong to hit someone in the face for no apparent reason other than I just want to. Okay, same scenario. This time, I take you out of the picture and let's see. Um, hmm. uh, a nine-month-old baby in a stroller. I'm going to punch the baby in the face. <laughs> I was waiting for somebody. Because this illustration drives it home, okay? You, tell you what, when you share in the gospel with people, if you can be absurd, it will keep them engaged. Be a little absurd, okay? Punching, which is worse? Punching a full-grown human being man in the face or punching a baby in the face? Well, punching a baby in the face is worse, by far, for many reasons that all of us could probably articulate, the least of which is, not, not the least of which is size, their capability, their understanding, and their innocence. That's the big one. Their innocence, their relative innocence. And who is the most innocent person in existence? Jesus. And when we sin against him, We are racking up a list of sins that we can never pay back in this lifetime. We can never erase the debt of sin that we have racked up. So even if you work really, really, really hard to do lots of good things, one, you're never going to be able to pay the debt of sin that you already have, knowing that you've broken God's law. And two, every day that you live and breathe air, you're racking up more sin debt. You can't overcome the sin debt you've already committed. So what are you going to do? Well, the only right answer is there's nothing I can do 
to absolve myself of my own sin debt. I'm guilty as charged. So you throw yourself on the mercy of the judge of the universe. You place your faith in him alone and you you just bow in humility before him that he might take the sin debt that you could never pay. And you believe in faith that he loves you and that his sacrificial atoning death on the cross and his precious blood that was poured out for you covers your sins. That's it. This is how Paul put it in Ephesians 2. He says, verse 4, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were still dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not at your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that nobody can boast. We are his workmanship. I love the Greek word poema. It, it, it translates masterpiece. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. L- l- listen to this. This is Paul again writing to young Titus. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works that we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's not by works. You cannot work to earn salvation. So lie number one was, I can and will be good enough and God will be pleased. Number two, I will work hard and God will be pleased with me. Nope. Lie number three. I'm a God-fearing person. God will accept me. This is really sad for me. In reality check, the fear of the Lord is only the, beginning of the, only the beginning of wisdom. It's not salvation. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is not salvation. It can lead to salvation if you'll chase it, if you'll, if you'll follow through. This, this was hard for me because I have a neighbor that I love dearly. And he's in his 80s, and he's a widower now. And when his wife passed, the first person he called was me that morning. Because he doesn't have a pastor. He doesn't go to church. But he wanted somebody to pray over his wife's body, which was awkward. Because from our perspective, she's, she's already gone you know, but, but loving my neighbor and wanting to serve him and minister to him, I went over there and prayed and we talked and he cried. And he had told me previously when she was still alive, I had tried to have a conversation with them about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. And the only thing that they would say to me in response to what I presented, I presented the entirety of the gospel. They kept saying, we're God-fearing people. We're God-fearing people. We're God-fearing people. Okay. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What are you going to do with the fear of the Lord? And even today, I see him every day and I pray for him. God-fearing is the beginning of wisdom. It's not salvation. 
can lead to salvation. Herod feared John the Baptist. And by extension, Herod feared the God who worked through John the Baptist, even though he didn't know him. But Herod did not know God. Herod did not seek God. A healthy fear of God is a good thing, but it's only the first step on the path to wisdom and salvation. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it, if you practice it, you do it again and again, put it into practice, then you have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's, there's probably uh, 50 verses about uh, the fear of the Lord in the Bible. I'll give you two more. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is a hatred of evil. It's a hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance are the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So just having the fear of the Lord doesn't mean you have the knowledge of the Holy One. It means it opens the door. You can go there. You can gain it. You can never be good enough. And that's why Jesus died for your sins and mine. I owed a price I could not pay. He paid a price he did not owe. And only by his grace have you and I been set free from the chains of sin and death. So I'll just wrap with this. When Jesus Christ, God's son, went to the cross, he took our sins, our mistakes, our evil, our unrighteousness, and he nailed them to the tree. He is the ultimate sacrifice. Mankind, still lost in shame, says, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. God likes me. God likes me. But God's word said, God is the only one who's good enough. God's the only one who's smart enough. And it's only by his grace we're saved. Lord, I pray that today, if anybody's hearing this and they have not put their faith in you, they have not cried out to you for salvation, they have not repented of their sins before you and asked for forgiveness and restoration in your presence, Lord, that they would do so today. Lord, we know, we know from your word that we can never be good enough, smart enough, uh, accomplished enough to gain your acceptance and your love because of our merit, because of our worth, because of what we've done, we only come before you and stand in your presence because of your grace. And we thank you for your grace. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here or, or watching this later uh, after today, Lord, that they would put their faith fully in you for salvation. Father, we ask that you would help us to be good stewards of the gospel message in these days, even until the last moment when you come for your church. Lord, help us to be found faithful in your sight. We ask it in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. You and I can never be good enough, and that's why Jesus died for our sins on the cross. We owe a price we could not pay. He paid a price he did not owe. And only by his grace have you and I been set free from the chains of sin and death. When Jesus Christ, God's son, went to the cross, he took our sins, our mistakes, our evil, and our unrighteousness. He is the ultimate sacrifice. So rejoice, for who the son sets free is free indeed. Amen? Go now and tell the glorious news of salvation to any who will listen. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.